Amen. Thank you, Jack. Hey, if you would, be turning in your Bibles to Romans chapter 14. We'll be in verses 13 through 19 this morning as we continue our journey uh, through the book of Romans. And so as you're turning there, let me give you the key truth that I would love us to walk away with this morning. God calls us to hospitality for peace with and mutual upbuilding of our siblings for whom Christ died. Let me say that again. God calls us to hospitality for peace with and mutual upbuilding of our siblings for whom Christ died. If you would give your attention to the reading of God's word, this is Romans 14, 13 through 19. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but... It is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother or sister is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, as we, we step into this, uh, I want to remind us that this is the section of Romans where Paul is really beginning to drill in in a very practical fashion uh, on issues of unity within the, the Roman churches. And he's trying to help them to see the role or key role that hospitality plays within that, right? Uh, it, it's a very difficult thing for us to be unified if we are unable to be welcoming to one another. It's tough for us to be unified if we don't really know each other. We don't ever break bread or know how to pray for one another or know our children's names or know things about each other to, to be able to ask about, pray about, and to help build up. And so he's trying to get them to see some of the things that were keeping them divided. And in fact, as he's going on in this section, it, it actually is, is kind of pushing against some of our own sensibilities. Paul says some things here that we as Presbyterian Reformed folk really probably aren't super comfortable with, right? When he says something to the nature of really it's about the heart, as he did previously, it's about whether or not you honor and give thanks to the Lord, whichever day you observe, whatever food you want to eat, which he's just picking things that were kind of low-hanging fruit, that does extrapolate to some other things. I want to pause here and make sure that we didn't hear this. It doesn't mean that sin is not yet still sin, right? So anything that is against the word of the Lord, anything that is against God's law must be dealt with. We have to, to, to in love, try to call one another out in a way or call one another into the light out of that darkness, right? So he's not speaking of matters that are of clear biblical distinction He's speaking of things that are what we would refer to as open-hand issues. And there's many of them that we have that really rise to the level of preference. We, like the Pharisees, sometimes are guilty of building fences outside of fences. I read just this morning, Jessica Hooten Wilson in her new book, Reading for the Love of God, summarized something that Dorothy Sayers said, and it really struck me. 
So Dorothy Sayers had translated the Gospels into a play called The Man Who Would Be King uh, back in 1941, and people went bonkers. Now, what they don't know about Dorothy Sayers is she's a legitimate translationist. She actually knows many languages and translated Dante's uh, the, the, comet, the Divine Comedy. So she's not just some arbitrary person who decided to change some words around. But what she was trying to do is get the gospel in a, a, a local vernacular. And people who were pushing against her were King James-only folks. You know, the King, King James is a translation, right? Like, it's, it's also common vernacular for 300 years prior. It's not the original. It's not, it didn't, the King James Version is not the original uh, uh, version of the Bible. And so one of the things she says that really struck me that as, as she summarized it is, is we, we tend to get attached to what's familiar instead of uh, being devoted to what is true. You need to let that sink in for a second. We do. We tend to get attached to what is familiar. In fact, there are places where we moralize this all throughout the church and there is no biblical support for some of the things that we have latched onto and divided over. And so Paul is trying to get the Romans to see this from the inside, and we need to recognize that this line also runs through our fractured hearts that Christ has come to heal. So the question I would have for you is, is what do other Christians do that hinder your growth in Christ? Well, what is it that other Christians do uh, that, that, that cause you to, to maybe be cynical or despairing, which is a hindrance to your growth in Christ? What, is, what do other Christians do that cause you to, to, to feel grieved, to not feel connected, to, to sometimes look around and go, is this my tribe? And do know that you probably are guilty of some of those things for other people. This could be any number of things from the way that someone presents themselves online versus how you deal with them in person, right? Oftentimes, you will hear a tone and an attitude online that you never experience of that individual in person. Or think of the, the ways in which we are dismissive of differing kinds of suffering because we haven't experienced it. And we try to say that it's illegitimate because we haven't, we haven't tasted of it. Or it could be singing songs a certain style. Tell me where in Scripture does it say you have to sing a particular kind of song in a particular kind of key? The argument for sacred music is, is, is a bourgeois argument from the West, right? Because sacred music, we have made that rise... Right? The organ, just like the KJV, is a recent instrument. And not even mentioned in the scripture. The stuff that's mentioned in the Psalms uh, actually approximates to a lot more of what you heard this morning. And so, it's fine if you want to sing a cappella. In fact, the argument for a cappella in terms of missionality, being able to actually set up a church in a new place, that works a whole lot better than having to have all this stuff. If you think about it. If you love the Trinity hymnal because it has been vetted and it has been thought through and it has survived for centuries, amen. If you like the green hymnal, if you like the Baptist hymnal, if you like the blue hymnal, if you like the fish, God bless you, I love you, you're still welcome at my home. Uh, 
But the, the issue is, right, so what Paul is pushing toward is it's really the heart of the matter, and, and Dorothy Sayers helps us here too because she's saying you got to think about it. You can't just castigate something based on style. You have to think about it. You have to actually ask, is this true? Not, is it familiar, and not, is it preferable? We've divided over those kind of things for far, far, far too long. And so Paul helps us, he picks up, he says, therefore, and we need to always ask ourselves in Scripture, what's being referred back to, or what's the therefore, therefore, as I've heard a million times. And he's saying essentially, look, God is the judge. God is the one who can see the heart in a particular fashion in ways that you cannot. God is the one who can appreciate in the power of the Spirit whether or not you have done something to his honor and in thanks to him more than any of us ever could. Right? Eugene Peterson tells a great story about a woman that was in his church who was quite gruff and salty in her language. And somebody mentioned to Eugene, they're like, man, she's, man, she's rough. And he's like, yeah, you should have known her five years ago. She's gotten a lot better. So you don't know someone's journey. You don't know what they've come from to. You don't know where the Lord is carrying them. You don't know what is motivating them. So it is a dangerous, dangerous thing for us to sit in judgment against one another when we see through a glass darkly, right? We are too limited to participate in judging. Now, I want to be careful here because he's actually speaking of something very specific. Judging the ways in which other people choose to honor the Lord within the umbrella that Scripture allows. I think that's very important. None of us would say, well, if you want to sacrifice kids, right? You you want to sacrifice kids and do it in honor to the Lord, and and you're thankful, well, I can't question that. that. Is that what he's saying? Absolutely not. He's not baptizing sin here. But what he is saying is when it's something that is within the umbrella, within the frame, uh, of, of scriptural things, we need to not take the opportunity to try to judge someone, which would mean to separate, break fellowship, or cause an inhospitality. He says, so because God is judge, therefore let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. If he has to say any longer, what does that mean was happening? Judgment was being passed. And, and, Think of how freeing it is. How freeing would it be to us, the church, if we didn't think we had to go around being the equivalent of the Islamic police in Iran? That we didn't have to go around judging people's devotional lives, the the quality of their prayers. Do you know that all prayer is babble before the Lord our God in some measure? Like, we don't come to him with a new set of words or any phraseology that he steps back and goes, I have never heard anything so beautiful in all of creation. Who are we to waste our time and energy judging the, the, the Christian practices, again, within the umbrella uh, of someone else? Who are we to suggest to those who are trying to figure some things out in time, they were trying to find ways to differentiate themselves? They were trying to find ways to be able to say, I am more beloved of God than you. 
And it's interesting that he introduced this distinction of strong and weak, which he's going to use some more. Again, he's not using that distinction in a way that would, that would allow them to divide. In fact, what he's saying to the strong is you need to give up your strength and become weak like your brothers and sisters. And that way you'll be unified. There's ways in which there are times we need to veil some of what we have, which is an interesting thing to think about because we don't think like that. We think we always ought to be, always, always ought to be on display, shining and flexing and such. And so he makes it very clear that this is something you can be free of. Think of what a, what a gift it would be. If we didn't have to worry about when somebody said, hey, you want to go to lunch? And go, oh, what is this about? What are they going to say now? What are they going to complain about now? Instead, that we would be able to be overjoyed when someone issues us an opportunity to be in their presence, an opportunity for hospitality. That we wouldn't use meals as opportunities to divide, but instead we would recognize that meals are always a gift to us to come together and to learn more about each other, to pray for each other, to encourage one another. And so notice what he says after this, but rather decide. Do you hear that word? Decide. You decide that you are never. You know what the Greek word there means? Never. Just that simple. Never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother or sister. So, this, so, so what is he telling us? Does it come natural? If I've got to decide, does this come natural? Nope. It has to be cultivated. It's something that you have to do intentionally and willfully. So we would be wise sometime this week. You don't have to do it on Lord's Day Sabbath, but sometime this week to go to the Lord with a broken and a contrite heart, as we heard from Psalm 51, and ask, Lord, I want to decide to never be a stumbling block to my brothers and sisters, but before I can make that decision, I need you to help me see how I have been. That way I can repent, I can mortify that which is divisive and vivify that which is hospitable and brings together in unity. And, and if we are willing to do that, I am certain that the Lord will be faithful and in his steadfast love he will answer us, but this is something that we must do. You have to decide to never put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother or sister. So we don't want to keep someone from being able to grow in Christ. I'm sure we've all made this mistake in some form or fashion, but praise be to God that Jesus allows us to be forgiven of this and to, to grow and go forward. It is, we're not left. If he's telling us to decide, that means he's provided everything we need to be able to make that decision. You are, we are filled with the Spirit, and Christ is interceding for us. He goes on to say, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. So think about this. You've got to understand who's saying this. This is a Pharisee of Pharisees. It would be seismic ideologically for a Pharisee of Pharisees to suddenly declare that there is nothing unclean. The entirety of his practice, the entire purpose of the Pharisee was to point out that which was unclean in many respects. And so for him to say this weighs so heavy. It shows the transformation that has occurred in Paul in Jesus Christ. So he knows. 
He is free to eat barbecue, shrimp, and other wonderful things, right? He is free in these things. Notice what he says next, though. So, so you've got to understand how amazing it would be for a Pharisee to come to the conclusion that nothing is unclean, and he can participate in any of that. that. That would be like being set free to eat bacon-wrapped shrimp. Do you understand? And yet, notice what he says next. But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. Reformed people, if you're not convulsing in your souls right now at what was just said in the scriptures, I'm not sure you're paying attention. This, think about this. We have built an entire set of theology and a denomination on the fact that things can be known and known for a fact and codified. And here Paul just said, well, if it's unclean to the one who's dealing with it, it turns out it is, in fact, unclean. That w- that's a cannonball in some ways. Now, that doesn't fling wide the gates on everything, but it does mean we have to think about some things slightly different than we have in many respects. We have to be more charitable and generous with certain circumstances than we have been in the past. This matters that to the one who thinks it's unclean, that would do damage. You understand what would happen to someone if they think something is unclean and they ingest it? What do they now believe is going to happen to them? It ain't casual. It's not heartburn. What do they think is going to happen to them? They would see themselves as hell-bound. They would see themselves as no longer in Christ, which is why he can go on to say that we should not eat and drink to the destruction, even though it's in their minds, of our brothers and sisters. We should do nothing to make them ever think that they are beyond the love of Christ. Don't to say. For if your brother or sister is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. Did you hear that? Think of how many times we, in our self-righteousness, uh, uh, like to kind of confront things. And in fact, I, I'm, I'm terribly guilty of this. I had a patient one time who was a Seventh-day Adventist who I think are, they're, they're under the pale. I really do. And he and I were talking. And what, he was one of the nicest people I've ever met in my life. If you don't know about a Seventh-day Adventist, essentially seek to keep the Mosaic Law. Not to be saved, but out of devotion for being saved. Do you understand? So, so they see it as... Uh, an opportunity to love the Lord their God, to worship on Saturday as the historic people of God have done uh, all the way up until Christ comes. They see it as very important not to eat things and be set apart. This is their devotion. They do it in honor to the Lord and they give thanks. And they're nice people. And so he and I were talking and uh, I was newly uh, reformed, which is the cage phase for those of you who understand that. And, and I said to him one day, I had a real zinger. I said to him, I said, hey, you, uh, you take every seventh year off? And he looked at me, he was like, what, what are you talking about? I was like, it's in the Bible, it's part of the Mosaic Law. You, you're supposed to take this every seventh year off. You take it off? And he looked at me, he said, I can't afford to do that. And I said, based on what you're telling me, you can't afford not to. Bazing. 
He never spoke to me again. And, and I'm, I know you left on that part, but actually that, that's the most grievous part. I would have been a richer human being with a relationship with this man. I would have been better for his encouragement, uh, uh, his, his just joy, his peace, his willingness to honor the Lord, his willingness to give thanks to the Lord as he had displayed all along, and yet I pwned him. For what? Nothing. It wasn't good, and it's grievous to me that I did it. And you may be thinking, how are you a pastor? I'm thinking the same thing. <laughs> so we need to be very, very careful that we don't take the things that have been given to us as gift. As Paul said, all things are unclean. They're, 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 they're open to you within reason. Not, not things that are sinful, but, but it's, you now have this wonderful freedom. But then he says, but there are times where you need to veil that freedom. You need to pull that freedom back for those you are against. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. Think about that. So who would speak of this as evil? Well, the brothers and sisters who are struggling, but then people who are outside the church. They look at, oftentimes, how we engage with each other. Right? The, the, the fights that we get into, the inter... <laughs> the internal fights that we get into, the way that we go at each other and try to act like we are somehow better than someone else. Uh, I saw someone posted online, uh, much to my irritation, uh, they had not observed, essentially, uh, Palm Sunday. Okay? We don't make a big deal out of Palm Sunday here. But I don't even know why it irritated me, but it did. But he, he said, somebody came up to him, he was preaching somewhere else, and asked him, hey, at your home church, did they observe Palm Sunday? And he said, I'm sorry, Palm Sunday, what are you talking about? And he made a big deal out of the fact that he didn't know it was Palm Sunday. Like that was some sort of very, he's so religious that he hates the church calendar. And, and I'm like, why, why would you celebrate this? Why am I even reading this? Why am I so irritated? But it's that kind of stuff, that smugness that we have toward one another, that, that notion that somehow we're doing it more right than other folks. You better hope that the Lord our God is present in many other churches throughout this city. We better hope that the Lord is at work through many other biblically faithful works throughout this city. Do you know how many people there are in Kennesaw alone? We don't have enough chairs for them. So if we're the only ones doing it right, then not a lot's getting done. So we better hope that other folks who sing songs in a slightly different style, who have a slightly different liturgy, their work is a little bit different, who have a slightly different take on some aspects of Scripture that are more open-handed than closed, we better hope that the Lord is at work. And why would we not want to celebrate that and encourage that? Now you may be thinking to yourself, well, then why do we do it the way we do it? Why don't we just fling wide the gates and do whatever? Well, because we have come to a conclusion that for a, a certain group of people, this is a liturgy that helps us draw closer to the Lord. That the way we do what we do is designed to point us to Father, Son, and Spirit. That the way we do what we do is intended to show creation, fall, redemption, consummation every single week in some form or fashion. And it's the way we understand how to do it. And praise God that there is a, a, a realm, a range of creativity with which we can do that. We're not all forced to do it the one way that none of us likes. 
And so, here Paul is saying, let not what you do that you think is good be spoken of as evil. He says, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. It's not. The kingdom of God is not about those things. So this is where we have to orient ourselves. But here's what the kingdom of God is about, and these words are carefully chosen and very important. Righteousness. When you hear the word righteousness, as we have argued throughout the Roman series, the first thing you should think about is the character of God. And the first place your mind would hopefully go is Exodus 34, 6, and 7, where God gives the declaration of himself to his people, and, and, we, and it's repeated the, the most, it's the most repeated scripture throughout all of the Bible. So he is steadfast in love. The kingdom of God is about steadfast love. What does steadfast mean? Unwavering, not easily, not easily deterred from loving someone else. Think of how easily we quit on each other. Think of how easily we give up on a church when it's going through a rough season. Think about what sets us to flight, barely the whistling of a fly. And yet we are called, the kingdom of God is about steadfast love. We should fight toward each other, not away from each other. Slow to anger. Anybody left? <laughs> Slow to anger. Merciful. Forgiving to, to thousands upon thousands, an innumerable amount. Just. So when it says righteousness, this is the full uh, cadre of communicable attributes of the Lord our God. You could also uh, call to mind the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. I think I got them. I don't know. But think of all those words and how beautiful they are and how beautiful it would be if that was what we concentrated on displaying and cultivating. Right? doesn't come easy. That's why it says you've got to decide. So you're not just deciding that you're not going to place a stumbling block. You're deciding for something. It's, uh, always understand, mortification must always have vivification along with it. So while we're not going to put stumbling blocks, we do want to display righteousness, the character of God. And, and it goes on. The next word, and peace. Who in here is like, man, I just don't, I don't like peace. I like it loud and, and crazy. I like to fight. Uh, I like to get beat up. Uh, I like for things to be unpredictable. Um, I like for everybody to be at odds. I like for Christmas to be, you know, a future crime special. No, I don't, I don't know that any of us would admit to that. But some of us, that's all we know. That's how I grew up, right? Christmas was chaos. Uh, it took me years and years to come to be able to appreciate Christmas because I thought Christmas was your grandma gets drunk, she loses her mind against your granddad, your mom gets high, somebody gets thrown into the Christmas tree, and seen. I thought that's what Christmas essentially was. So I wasn't real keen on it as holiday, to be honest with you. And so, so, so we, have, we have to recognize that peace is such a powerful force and longing that we all have, right? Think of, think of how, how many articles have you read about how divided we are within Christianity, how divided we are within the country, how divided we are within the world, how divided we are within the universe? Because now apparently aliens are showing up all over the place. And so... 
Peace is something we ought have in the forefronts of our minds, something that we ought be deciding on, that that is going to be our goal, praying for, longing for, making decisions around. And this next one, joy in the Holy Spirit. Now, I've been doing a decent dive on joy uh, and am persuaded that, that I've got it wrong, terribly wrong. I have always thought of joy as something that just kind of shows up, an uninvited guest, if you will, right? So you happen to be at, uh, 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 in some small town in South Georgia, and you pop into some barbecue joint, and it turns out to be amazing, and joy shows up, right? Or uh, an unexpected gift, uh, a letter comes, something like that, that that causes you to have joy. So I've always seen it as this emotion I had no control over, that, that it's not something you can really cultivate, well, that's actually biblically untrue. And honestly, the matter is joy is something that is to be cultivated and is not an uninvited guest, but a function of the invited guest, the Holy Spirit, who Jesus invited into us in our redemption. And joy is something that can occur in the midst of great pain and sorrow, something I've never really thought about. And joy is a command, right? Adam, joy. Oh, okay. Yeah, there you go. You, you, you got real close. So something I've really been praying about, and the Lord has been gracious to grant it because I don't lean toward joy naturally. I am a bit of a cynic. Nah, a bit of a cynic. I'm a deconstructionist. Left my own devices, thoroughly postmodern. Love really macabre things. Love really macabre music, dark stuff, because uh, that's super cool since I don't have hair anymore. Uh, and so, and so it's this whole like thing. And so for me, it has been a great gift of the Lord to show me, no, that is, that's not who you are. That's not who you are in me. And you're being transformed, transfigured, if you will, in the power of the resurrection. And so Paul is telling us these things ought to be on the forefront of our minds as we engage with each other. The righteousness of God, is it being displayed in how we interact with one another? How we parent, how we conduct ourselves in our marriages, how we conduct ourselves as friends, how we conduct ourselves as co-workers, how we conduct ourselves as church members. Is peace a focus? Are we looking for opportunities where there is a, maybe some static on the frequency or an actual disunion of some sort? Are we looking for opportunities for that to be made right? And are we doing all of this in the joy of the Holy Spirit because we are redeemed? Joy comes from knowing who and whose you are. It's not an uninvited guest. It's not something temporary. It's not something that comes and goes. You may feel it. Your feelings may fluctuate. But the reality of who and whose we are is what we keep coming back to. And so he's saying this is what ought be the focus of the kingdom of God. Any kingdom activity, any hospitality. And then he says this. Whoever, whoever. Very important that you hold on to that word. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. What did he just say? That whoever in Christ understands that the kingdom of God is about righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit, they're good. Jesus said something very disconcerting in Mark 9. The disciples had just gotten into an argument, and this is fascinating that it occurs after this. They just got into an argument about who's the greatest. Who's the greatest? Like when Jesus died, who's going to run this thing? 
Who's the greatest? And then Jesus has them come to him and they're like, hey, Jesus, there's some cats out here. This is loose translation, by the way. There's some cats out here casting out demons. They're not doing it right. They're not even doing it like we do it. They're like doing like this, pulling their leg up thing. It's all weird. And you remember what he said to them? He said, kill them all. Right? No, Mark 9 don't say that. Verses 38 through 41, no, what it does say is he says, if they're not against us, they are. Well, hold on, hold on a second. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Good reformed people, that can't be. That's that y'all's Bible? Y'all reading the message or something? What, what's going on out here? That is exactly what it says. I'm not exactly sure what to do with that. Except trust that the Lord knows better than I do. And trust that the Lord is more gracious than I could ever be. Because I'm one of his children, for crying out loud. And so he, he goes on to say that they can offer, and think about this, they just argued who's the greatest. And he says these words, which is very similar to what Paul's saying. He says, look, I'm going to boil it down for y'all. Whoever offers someone a cup of cold water in my name, their reward will never be taken from them. Hold on, hold on a second. I thought we were to be doing like great feats of strength for the Lord our God. I thought we were supposed to sell all our stuff and go and get killed. I thought we were supposed to do all this crazy stuff. Well, maybe, maybe that's what he calls you to specifically. But by and large, whatever you do in his name, something as simple as giving someone. And if you're giving someone a cup of cold water, what is that? What's the fancy word for that? Hospitality. Especially in their culture. You do know they didn't have refrigeration, right? So to have a cup of cold water would be something kind of luxurious in their culture. So to just be giving that away, just giving away cold water, that's crazy. And to be rewarded for it, crazier still. But this is the gospel. And so Paul is making it very clear the heart of the matter is far more important than the actions. Listen to what we heard from Psalm 51. When David is uh, so aggrieved by his sin that has cost him his firstborn with Bathsheba, and he says, look, I would offer bulls and goats if that's what you wanted. I'd do all the religious stuff if that's what you wanted, Lord. But that is not what you want. You want a broken and a contrite heart. Which is what all those sacrificing bulls and goats ought lead him to. God don't need that stuff. That's for us. That shows us the cost of our sin. And we have a Savior who died for us, who was the Paschal Lamb, who was the sacrifice, so that we could live this way. Notice how he concludes. He says, so then, so with all that being true, let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. I want to caution you, again, like joy, this is not something that's accidental. It's not an uninvited guest. It won't just pop in and pop out. It's something you should look for. It's something you should cultivate. It's something you should decide on, that this is who you are going to be, and work to cultivate that. Uh, too, too much of what we do is we'll just let it come based on the flow and the busyness of our lives. Well, the Lord is gracious to still show up. And do various things, but much more that we would cry out to him for opportunities like this, right? That we would be intentional and be looking around. All right, 
Where is there a place of fracture or potential fracture? Where is there some misunderstanding? Where is there some uh, just, just a fracture in relationship? Go after it. Pursue what makes for peace. Where is someone struggling in their faith? Where is someone maybe struggling with the sovereignty of God or the goodness of God? Where is someone maybe struggling with legalism? Seek to mutually build them up. Seek to have them taste and see the great goodness of the Lord for whom nothing is unclean. What a gift it would be that they would come to that conclusion as well. Because then we could all have bacon wrapped shrimp and enjoy the good things of the Lord. And so this is who we are being called to be. I've got two short quotes for you. One is from Charles Hodge. He says, the use of the liberty which every Christian enjoys under the gospel is to be regulated by the law of love. Is, is what you're doing in your freedom displaying a love for God and a love for neighbor as you have been loved? It's got to be both. And then, and then Martin Luther. Why then should anyone want to serve their stomach and palate which are bound to perish rather than the sibling who will live forever, forever with them in glory? Consider how many fights we've gotten in that were more about perishing things than about what matters most to Christ. Christ died for people, not a culture, not cultural style, not cultural expressions, not a nation. And you may say, well, what about Israel? They get folded in the people of God. They were the, they were the agency that was going to lead to the Gentiles, to the nations. Not for a particular colored people or less colored people. Not for a particular gender. He died for all who bear the image of God. And we would do well to start with that understanding. And engaging with that reality with righteousness and peace. And I want you to think about this. Can hospitably uh, uh, contribute to the growth of your siblings for whom Christ died. There's a hospitality that needs to be to those who are not yet our siblings, but there's also a hospitality that needs to be extended to those who are our siblings. And so how can we grow in that? It's good that we prayed for our small group ministry this morning. That's a wonderful way in which for us to get to know one another. And I encourage you to, to join a small group. If you're interested in leading one, uh, because we could use some in different places in the region, Love to talk to you about that. Again, it doesn't require you to have an MDiv. Uh, you're facilitating more than you are teaching. Far more. If you get to teaching, we need to probably have a conversation. And so we uh, want for there to be many opportunities for us to be hospitable to one another. Invite people over. Don't think it has to be magnificent, Martha Stewart-esque, or make it onto Pinterest or the cover of Southern Living. It could just be ice cream for crying out loud. But make sure they're not lactose intolerant because that could make them stumble. And so you look for opportunities to build up other people. We are so self-focused. And I get it. I understand we are prioritized. Notice I did not say busy. There's that which you decide on and that which you are not deciding on. So look for places and don't feel overwhelmed, right? So how many times a week are you supposed to do this? How many times a month? I don't know, look at your schedule, talk to your family, figure it out uh, in ways that will be beneficial to you. 
and to other people. But most importantly, when you engage in it, pay close attention to your heart. Make clear decisions about who you're going to be and what you're going to encourage others in. Because this don't come natural. So Romans 14, 13 through 19 tells us that God calls us to hospitality for peace with and mutual upbuilding of our siblings for whom Christ died. Now, what a gift it is on a morning when we've heard that particular message that Christ, the great host, invites us to his table. That Christ, the gracious and hospitable host, says, take and eat and have your faith nourished in the power of the Holy Spirit. 